This is Hember Writing Podcast, Episode 3, curated by Beth Crane for Battlebird Productions. Possessed by Samantha Tanini. Lights flash. A breeze on my skin sends shivers down my spine. My fingers are numb with cold. Where? Where am I? I hear footsteps, a woman walking towards me. She smiles at me. I want to smile back, but I can't. I can't move at all, I'm frozen in place. I know her from somewhere. I know I do, but I don't know where from. She comes closer, stands close to me. There's something wrong with her eyes. They're cold, dark, shiny. I'm drawn in, my eyes fixed to hers. I see a glint in her hand, something sharp, but I can't move to stop her. She's still smiling as she raises a knife to my throat. She kisses my frozen lips and I feel the warmth of her at the same moment as I feel a sharp pain, the heat of my own blood flowing. Then, nothing. I wake, sit up, my breathing erratic. I reach for my throat but it's hot and wet with sweat, not blood. I shake my head, trying to clear the dream. My legs are numb, bound to the bed in sweat-soaked sheets. I disentangle my legs, swing them over the side of the bed. I sit with my head in my hands, my thoughts racing as I try to make sense of the nightmare. Making my way to the closet, I hear the high whiz of rockets, the smattering of explosions. It's New Year again. I don't see why everyone celebrates. It's just another day and another one I'd slept through. Night shifts are a killer. Nothing will change over the next year. Nothing ever does. Humans will still walk the earth. will still terrorise one another for money. I get dressed, walk downstairs. Kiara stands at the window, watching the fireworks. I stand behind her, wrap my arms around her and nuzzle her neck. Hey, sweetie, did you sleep well? She looks back over her shoulder, her eyes filled with concern. I sigh, look away. No, not really. She turns to face me, brings her hand to my face. Did you have another nightmare? Concern and fear shadow her face as she looks at me. I give a small nod. It's the same one again, it's been the same for weeks. Maybe it means something. I don't know. I don't know what it could mean. She looks away, her shoulders giving a defeated shrug. Then she smiles. Are you hungry? I've made something special. Her eyes brighten as I smile back. Her attempts to clear the black cloud these dreams leave magically works. My heart rises, beats stronger for the right reasons. She's the only person who can make me smile, who can make me forget my problems. And that's one of so many things I love about her. I smile, lean in to kiss her, a kiss that lasts for a long time. We cling together, 
Sometimes I feel like I could drown in her kisses. She's the one who breaks it with a giggle. I love that sound so much. Not so fast, tiger, she murmurs into my ear, uncharacteristically flirtatious. Dinner first and then dessert. She nibbles my ear, sending a shiver down my spine and buckling my knees. And then she stops, takes my hand and leads me to the dining table. Sit down. I'll get dinner. We eat, drink wine, enjoy each other's company. Our legs entwine under the table, distracting. She takes my hand, our dinner forgotten on the table, and leads me towards the bedroom. I start to unbutton her shirt, my fingers trembling, but she stops me with a smile, shakes her head. Not so fast, my love. I've got something a little special for you tonight. Wait right here. She leaves me sitting on the bed. I want to be excited, but something doesn't feel right. I feel cold, even though the radiator's hot and the thermostat's at 25 degrees. A cold, familiar breeze slithers across my skin. I go to close the window, but it's shut already. The aircon is off, the door is closed, there shouldn't be a breeze. I try to shrug the unease from my limbs, try to get myself back in the mood. I stand, walk across to the window again. Clouds have rolled across the starry sky, lightning flashes joining the fireworks. Just as another roll of thunder rattles the windows, I turn to see Chiara stood in the doorway of the closet, wearing lingerie that I can only describe as jaw-dropping. I want to speak, but she beats me to it. Why are you over there? she asks, her voice uncharacteristically hollow. I feel the same breeze again. I shiver, looking at her again, my eyes fixated. I clear my throat, answer her. I was just watching the lightning. <laughs> well, that doesn't matter. She walks towards me, something strange about her step. I'd never seen her in heels before, but she walked in these like she'd worn them every day of her life. Kiara, are you feeling all right? I ask. She doesn't answer, keeps walking, just like she always does. I want to run, but I'm frozen, just like I always am. The woman in front of me isn't my Kiara. She's something else entirely, and I'm frozen to the spot. The knife, as always, is in her hand. She stops close to me, our lips almost touching. The tip of the knife kisses my throat at the moment our lips meet. I never want the kiss to end because I know what comes next. It hurts more than in the dream, but somehow I stand it. I pull her close to me, pull whatever it is close to me, wanting her there despite what she's doing. The pain numbs to a throb, my mind blinking on and off like a fluorescent light. My knees buckle and she releases me, allows me to sink to the floor, to curl up, fetal, 
in a pool of my own blood. I look up at her, watch as the grin of victory leaves her eyes, to be replaced by confusion, as her eyes widen in shock as she drops the knife. She sinks down beside me, her tears mixing with my blood. Darkness claims me as she lifts the knife again. The Envelope by Augie Peterson If you ever find yourself in the city on the corner of Broad and Vernon, you'll see a dirty pile of rags sitting on the sidewalk. It lies in front of the sleek mirrored windows of the office building behind it. What you'll realise if you approach this pile of rags is that it's actually a person. His name is Bert. Bert greets everyone with a smile. He doesn't hold out his hands as people walk by. He doesn't have a box or a cup to collect the spare change he so desperately needs. Rather, he offers a smile and a compliment to everyone that passes. The only time of day he might forget your compliment is during rush hour. Once the clock strikes 3pm... Fit men in suits and slender women in pencil skirts emerge from the sleek office building. Bert smiles and waves from his position on the ground. He nods to the businessmen and women as they pass by, sometimes shouting, That colour looks lovely on you, or Your shoes look sharp today. The employees of the business office often ignore him, but sometimes they'll get thrown enough change to afford a Big Mac for dinner that night. Bert has been sitting at the corner of Broad and Vernon for 12 years now, but today is going to change everything for him. It's nearing 3pm and Bert is in his spot and arranging the blue and black plaid flannel shirt he's wearing. He rubs the crust from his eyes and stands, resting against the concrete wall behind him. He waits for the first few employees to trickle out onto the sidewalk. That's a nice shade of lipstick you're wearing there, miss. Sir, your tie is one of my favourite colours. After some time, the sidewalk becomes congested with workers darting this way and that, sticking out their arms to catch taxis, waiting for buses and talking loudly into their cell phones. In the commotion, Bert simply waves and smiles at passers-by. As if from a cloud of people, a thick rectangular envelope drops onto the blanket Bert is standing on. He picks it up and shouts, Hey, you dropped something! But no one turns around. Bert pockets the envelope and decides to hold on to it in case someone comes back to claim it. Throughout the rest of the day, Bert keeps a sharp eye out for anyone that might have lost the envelope, but no one comes to claim it. As night falls, Bert's curiosity grows and he decides to open the envelope. Inside is a large stack of money. All five dollar bills. Bert counts out seventy-five dollars. Tears of gratitude made lines through the grime on his face. As he flips through each bill, a note flitted out and down to the ground from the stack. Upon picking it up, Bert read, Bert, there's more when this comes from. Come to 1241 Greenhouse Road and I'll meet you there. 
the homeless man had finally been given a chance to change his life after twelve years. He found it odd that no time or date was listed, but was excited nonetheless to have been given this opportunity. Had it not been dusk, he would have found his way to the address sooner, but he decided to wait until morning to make his trip. The next day, Bert packed up everything he owned into a grubby backpack. He washed up in the gas station bathroom, bought a suit and shoes at the thrift store and made his way to Greenhouse Road. Having lived in the city for so long, he made it there in ten minutes. The address led him to an empty office space. Assuming his guest meant to meet inside, he tried the door. It swung open and he stepped inside. Welcome, a voice said as Bert entered. Uh, hello? He called into the empty space. There was no furniture in the office, only a small desk with a desktop computer monitor on top. It was in the centre of the room, and the screen lit up as Bert approached it. Welcome, Bert Matthews, the same voice said. At the same time, letters appeared on the computer screen, spelling out what was spoken. Please do not attempt to leave. The door is monitored by an automated turret, designed to shoot on command. The voice was almost chipper, as if it was an advanced automated system with an actual personality. Bert looked out of the glass office door, up at a brick wall on the other side of the street. Sure enough, there was a small mounted machine gun that looked to be the size of a security camera. What is happening here? I was sent a note, said Bert, growing increasingly frustrated. Yes, we've created a special opportunity for you, Bert, and we thank you for accepting, the computer said, stating his name as if it was a selected option from a menu. I haven't agreed to anything. By spending the money we initially granted you, our contract was set, and you accepted our terms and conditions. We thank you greatly and look forward to working with you. Without responding, Bert bolted for the door and ran out into the alleyway. Before he could go any further, a gunshot rang out. In front of Bert, carved into the pavement by his feet, was a large bullet hole, about the size of a half dollar. The turret locked a laser sight onto his chest and slowly followed him back to the door of the office space as he went back inside. What do you want from me? he asked. His entire body was shaking and his eyes had begun welling up with tears. We are willing to give you 10,000 US dollars in exchange for a small task. I'm listening, Bert replied, still shaken but now interested in what the computer had to offer. We need you to deliver a package. It will be on the sidewalk where you normally sit. Deliver the package to the CEO of Telecorp, the office building behind your sidewalk. When you arrive, face the security camera to your right and state your name and date of birth. Do not talk to anyone. Take the elevator to the 15th floor and enter the office of Marcus Lachance. Place the box on his desk and leave. What's in the package? Bert asked, placing his hands behind the straps of his backpack. I'm not at liberty to say, the computer replied. I have a right to know what I'm delivering. You have no rights to know anything related to this exchange, according to the contract. I never signed a damn contract, Bert yelled, his yellow teeth grinding in anger between his reddening cheeks. By spending the money we initially granted you, our contract was set and you accepted our terms and conditions. 
We thank you greatly and look forward to working with you, the computer repeated. God damn it, Bert swore. Am I going to get shot if I leave to get your package? You have 20 seconds to recover the package and leave the area. Thank you for your time. Goodbye. The haggard man turned quickly and exited the building. He nearly tripped on a 12 by 12 inch box set in front of the door. He tucked it under his arm and ran out of the alley, just as a red dot appeared on his chest. While Bert had lived on this corner for the last 12 years, he'd never been inside the office building. He didn't know what it was for, and until today he hadn't been aware of what the company was called. The sweeping path that led through the neatly landscaped front lawn led to a revolving door at the front of the giant building. Bert walked inside. The walls were white with dark blue trim, and the furniture was all made of white leather. A young woman, with red hair pulled back into a tight ponytail, sat behind the desk directly in front of him. He turned to his right and searched for the camera on the wall. Robert Matthews, April 4th, 1964. The receptionist glared at him as he passed by her desk, and she simply rolled her eyes as he pressed the elevator button. Once Bert arrived on the 15th floor, he placed the package on an empty desk in a room labelled Marcus Lachance. Unsure of what to do next, Bert left and headed back to collect his reward. The clock was nearing 3pm, and Bert relished in the fact that he would no longer have to wait for this time of day to arrive. A broad smile covered his face as he passed the receptionist on his way out. Within seconds of his departure through the revolving door, he heard screaming behind him. A woman in a pencil skirt and white blouse ran past him. She was covered from head to toe in blood. Bert stopped, asked if she was all right, but all the woman could do was scream. Soon after, more people emerged from the building, covered in blood. Some had blood pouring from their eyes, others from their ears, and even the follicles on their skin. They were all screaming in agony as they fell onto the neatly manicured lawn. Some had even stopped moving altogether. Victims peppered the lawn as Bert made his escape. He recognised some of the faces that passed by him, moaning and screaming. He'd only complimented this man's shoes this morning, and now they were ruined with blood. With tears running down his cheeks, he tried to resuscitate the receptionist that had darted past him and fell. Her eyes were bleeding, her hair was matted with blood. Bert pushed on her chest, but all it did was force more blood from her open mouth. He wanted to help those that had been so kind to him over the years, but he knew that if he caught this terrible disease, he'd never see the money he was promised. He made the difficult decision to leave and save himself. Blood stained the new suit and shirt that he was wearing, and he looked like a lunatic running through the streets back to the empty office space. Once he arrived, he sped to the door, trying his best not to look at the turrets still mounted on the wall. The computer was gone. In its place was a stack of hundred-dollar bills. He assumed it was the ten thousand dollars he was promised and grabbed it, shoving it into the large pocket of his suit jacket. Peering through the glass door at the turret, he assumed that the deal was the same. Twenty seconds. He took a deep, emotional breath and opened the door. Without a second of hesitation, the gun fired and shot Bert through the head. He was dead before he hit the pavement. 
The Maiden Voyage of Bluebird 3.2 Written and read by Beth Crane With additional voices by Headley Knights So, welcome to my first mission I didn't manage to get my recorder set up for my last shift But this time it's worked, I think This has all been, well, exciting But also overwhelming But also boring in places you know, but I wanted to capture it as a historic journey. So now, I'm getting ready to meet my new co-worker for the next week. If you're listening in the future and science goes the way I'm expecting it to, there probably won't be cryopods, they'll have probably found a better way to travel long distances. But for now, this ship, the Bluebird 3.2, is predicted to take about four centuries to reach its destination. To keep the ship running, it's operating on a skeleton crew. We're working in shift patterns, four weeks at a time. The first week you overlap with the previous worker, and the last week you overlap with the next worker, so you don't get too lonely. And the rest of the time, you're in cryo. All of the major stuff is scheduled for those overlap weeks, with the other two weeks just being standard maintenance. This is my second shift, which makes our mission about... 70 years in. My first shift was with Eleanor Crow, which obviously left me starstruck. Of course, you'll already know all about her. She was so nice and so confident. She helped to get me through the first week, and that meant the following two weeks just weren't so lonely. She was my inspiration at the Academy. The woman who'd done everything. I'm sad I didn't get the chance to record her voice, but hopefully I'll run into her on the new world. She said she'd recommend me. The week after that was with Frederick Bering. Nice guy, slightly odd. More on my level, this was his first long-term mission, although he's a senior rank. We were both excited, almost like kids, about the new world we're heading for, about our new lives. His girlfriend is in one of the non-waking cryo units, but each crew member only works four shifts during our journey, give or take, so he's not apart from her for too long. One of the most striking things about him was his front tooth, which was striped down the middle with gold. He'd broken it in some sort of stupid accident and had a gold one made, coated with enamel so it matched, but the enamel had started falling off, so it was distracting. He did keep using his teeth for things that you shouldn't. I'm pretty certain he didn't own a bottle opener, so that was probably why. All in all, it was kind of mundane. There were romantic stories that you probably shouldn't believe about these cryo shifts. People meeting and falling intensely in love. All of that. I'm pretty sure it never happens. But hey, maybe this shift will be different. I can hear footsteps. Hi. Hi. I'm Paul. Jessica. And then I fell over. Not that that was a huge surprise. My body was still getting used to breathing air again. My cells pinging back into life. He caught me. He smelled... good. I probably smelled awful. The pods are filled with a peculiar chlorinated goop, which keeps us alive, obviously, but also seeps into our skin and leaves us pale and bloated. I desperately needed a shower and something to eat. 
Are you okay? Hey, hey, I've got you. I've got you. Yeah, I'm fine. You've not done this many times before, have you? Have you? Well, I'm not a pro, but it's my sixth mission, so uh, I've been at it a while. He was slightly taller than me, but not much more. Broadish shoulders, a nice smile, slightly nervous. A fringe of thick brown hair cut badly. Intense blue eyes. I leant on his arm and he led me to the rec room. Something smelled amazing. What's that? I've been cooking. I found some stuff in the freeze-dried stores that was surprisingly easy to work with. I might not have many talents, but I can wield a spatula. Eleanor, as far as I'd known, had existed solely on a diet of meals in tubes, unseasoned. And while Frederick had been a keen cook, he'd been a very, very bad one. He tried out recipes on me, hoping that he'd be better by the time his girlfriend woke up, but if anything, he'd gotten worse. I don't know how he'd managed to set fire to fried eggs, especially in this atmosphere, but he'd managed it. Paul, on the other hand... Oh, I don't know where he'd learned it, but he'd managed to work wonders with what little ingredients we had on board. His eggs benedict brought me back from my cryocoma, and the salt and pepper ribs he made that night. Sublime. And the chow mein. You've, you've got a little sauce on your chin. Sorry. <laughs> oh, God, this is so good, though. I haven't eaten this well in... Actually, ever. I'm glad you're enjoying them. I've had them marinating for the past two days. I, I wanted your first meal to be special. So, what's happened since I've been asleep? Uh, not much. A uh, couple of technical issues. The wire in Sector 7's a little dodgy, but I've soldered it. Uh, I think it should hold up till the next electrical engineer wakes up in a couple of months. And there's an alarm that's been going off every so often. I've checked it three or four times. I think there's something wrong with the sensor. Apart from that, uh, well, no, that's, that's it. You just need to patrol, basically. It's surprising how quickly patrols can become romantic walks. You walk along side by side, your hands occasionally brush until, eventually, your fingers interlink. You don't look at one another, but you feel something. A little jolt of electricity where skin meets skin. The ship was looking surprisingly worn, but I suppose just having one or two people awake at a time does lead to a weird atmosphere. It was ageing at a rate that we weren't. Shiny metal had dulled, developed the occasional rust bubble. Most of the real wear and tear was in the kitchen, the result of 900 separate people living alone and not being too keen on cleaning, as well as the burn marks from Bering's egg experiments. But everything was still serviceable, if a little dusty. Because it was designed to serve as a base when we landed, everything was on a massive scale. So me and Paul ate our meals in a mess hall designed for 5,000, on plates designed to withstand 100-mile-an-hour collisions. There was a gentle romance in it. I knew we only had a week, and that a week isn't long enough to know someone, but 
but within a couple of days I felt like we'd known each other forever. We ate and laughed and danced and, well, <laughs> things came naturally to us. He made me laugh more than anyone I'd ever met, and the idea of spending the next three weeks without him, and then the two months after that, made me miserable. But still, we had to celebrate our last night together before we landed. He'd lit candles at our end of the table. I was sitting as he brought out the meal. Ah, oh, the smell of it. Beef bourguignon, again, one of my favourites. Slow-cooked meats, so tender it fell apart on the fork. Caramelised onions, so sweet they were almost sinful. The rich red wine sauce. If I close my eyes, I can still taste it. So, how are you going to spend the rest of your time awake? I... Listen, we'll find each other when we land. You know that, don't you? Unless, uh, I mean, if you didn't want me to... No, <laughs> I... I want to, I... I don't think I've ever felt this way about anyone. Ever. Neither have I. What if there was a way we could stay awake? Together? My mouth was full. All I could do was look into his eyes. They looked right into me, seeing right into my soul. Smiling. Warming me from the inside. My teeth met a hard lump. Something that jarred in my mouth. It was a tooth, a gold tooth, bearings a tooth. I looked up at Paul. He smiled, and I smiled back. We're finishing this episode with an extract from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? Or how delineate the wretch whom, with such infinite pains and care, I had endeavoured to form. His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing. His teeth of a pearly whiteness. 
but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same colour as the dun-white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardour that far exceeded moderation, but now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time, traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, lassitude succeeded to the tumult I'd before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavouring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her, but as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead, my teeth chattered and every limb became convulsed when, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night, walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse to which I had so miserably given life. In that episode of Hembra, you heard Possession by Samantha Tanini, The Envelope by Augie Peterson, the Maiden Flight of Bluebird 3.2 by Beth Crane, and Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, by Mary Shelley. All pieces were read by Beth Crane, with Headley Knights providing additional voices. Our theme and accompanying music are by Olivia Ebenike. If you want to submit to Hembra, check out our website at battlebird.productions forward slash Hembra. Email us on hemberwriting at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at at hemberwriting. Thank you. <laughs>